Great to be here again. Uh, did, did I, is the mic on? Okay. I'm going to take my jacket off there. <laughs> Malcolm gave me carte blanche tonight, you know. He said the meeting's going to uh, 8.15, so there we go. No, what it, well, quarter after what you thought. The time changed, and we're on the old time. And uh, you're in actual serious trouble tonight because I have my daughter here and my, you know, I told you about Micah this morning. Little Micah was missing. I don't know where Micah Bosworth is, but I missed him. I got big Micah. But Alison, my daughter, has never learned Vivian's little signal that I got to stop. <laughs> so you're in trouble. One of the nice things about preaching here is that uh, one of the elders said, take plenty of time for the message. Now I know... From the congregation's point of view, that make it, make it tough. It uh, reminds me of a very friendly lady. She was called Gladys, and she approached a sleepy-looking gentleman after the service and extended a hand, and she greeted him enthusiastically, and she said, Hello, I'm Gladys Dunn, to which he replied, I'm Gladys Dunn. Boy, I thought he'd never finish. <laughs> So I hope there aren't too many Gladys Duns with us tonight. But we are going to finish Jonah. We're talking in this series about what God does for us. And we're in chapter 4. We've talked about God calling us in chapter 1. God listening to us. Lessons on prayer in chapter 2. The way God responds in chapter 3. The greatest revival in human history this morning. And tonight we're going to talk about the way God cares in chapter 4. You know, when I read any kind of book, there are, there are two things I always hope to find at the end of a good book. I like to find a happy ending. I'm really into happy endings. But I do like a surprise twist in the tale. I like surprise ending, but I do enjoy a proper resolution of things. Now, this last chapter of Jonah leaves me with mixed feelings. It's certainly got a happy ending, like these guys coming out of the movie. They say, that's what I call a surprise ending. And in some ways, there are hair-raising aspects to the ending. But then, from the hero Jonah's point of view, it's hardly a happy ending. I mean, at the end of the book of Jonah... Here he is, he's angry with God and he's back exactly where he was in chapter 1. He's still a rebellious prophet. And yet, you know, as you think about that and as we've talked through Jonah, I wonder, is there an account of God's gracious mercy that's more compelling, more uplifting than this one? I mean, this short book, four chapters, short chapters, has shown us God's mercy it was extended to Jonah We'll see that again tonight to those sailors and eventually to the whole city of Nineveh. And you know what the Assyrians were like. Never forget that. And given that, what I would have expected is Jonah, he'd be, he'd be absolutely beside himself with joyful thanksgiving. I mean, a preacher that got results like that, man, you'd be jumping over the moon. But Jonah's pouting. He's angry. His mood's just the opposite to what you'd expect. He's angry with God that, that saved him. He's angry, although it's been a great blessing to so many. I mean, you think of all the preachers you've ever met. What preacher did you ever meet who was so upset that he got so many converts? 
So Jonah is in many ways a difficult person to figure out. You think about Jonah. I mean, in the belly of the fish, after he disobeyed God, you remember he prayed, Oh God, let me live. Now in chapter 4, after the greatest triumph of his life, having obeyed God, he's praying, Oh God, let me die. I mean, he's a complex character, is Jonah. The words, actually, the word used to describe how angry Jonah was when Nineveh was spared, if you look at the Hebrew language, not that I know Hebrew, as Alison well knows, but, but you check these words, and it's much, much stronger than the English translation implies. I was surprised to find that Jonah actually called God's mercy, extended to Nineveh, in the original, a great evil. That's a literal translation of that phrase, that he was greatly displeased. So it shows the depth of his displeasure. Now what are we going to do about Jonah tonight? This is a wrap-up. Well, there's a practical, there's an important thing that I want you to do for me tonight. We're going to go through this chapter. We're going to reflect on Jonah. But I want you to spend some time looking in the mirror. We look in the mirror and we see all kinds of images. I never seem to notice all those little defects when I look in the mirror, but I want you to look through the mirror and honestly check whether there's any sign of Jonah's attitude in you. That's the practical application. I mean, think about it. Keep asking yourself, do I see anything of myself in Jonah? I don't know, maybe you look in the mirror and you see something much worse. We all have different ways of looking in the mirror, but what you need to do tonight is say, what of me is reflected in this character? For example, I mean, think Jonah's fine with God's mercy when he received it. But he couldn't handle it when God showed mercy to those wicked and barbaric Ninevites. I think maybe like us at times, uh, we look for a God who, well, favors people that we like. I mean, is there a sneaking feeling sometimes that maybe God should judge them? I mean, the evil people, the, the people are really out of it, the people we don't like, the tough people, marginalized, so hard to handle. You see, we should never allow ourselves even to imagine for a moment that, that God only loves people like us. There's a time. Who, who does God find it easy to love? You know, well, he, he finds it easy to love people like me. Right. People who are respectable, people who you know, do the right thing, they're appealing. Now, that's, the, that's just one of so many challenges about your attitude with, compared with Jonas. Remember that great verse in Acts 10, when Peter began to speak, Cornelius' house, things are falling into place for Peter, and he says, I now realize we want to all do that. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. But actually, he accepts from every nation the one that fears him and does what is right. Very foundational truth. Even Peter, a little slow to realize that. So think about that. Think about your attitudes as we go through Jonah. But we must get into some headings because I want to summarize this very important final chapter in a fascinating book. I'm going to do it with Hedy. I'm going to talk about Jonah's continuing confusion, which you see in the chapter. But I want to go back again to God's caring control. And of course, there is a 
challenging conclusion and it comes from God and we need to focus on that. So that's the way we're going to go to structure Jonah for Jonah's continuing confusion, God's caring control, and God's challenging conclusion. So let's get into this and look at Jonah's ongoing confusion. And as we begin to analyze the reasons for Jonah's anger with God, his displeasure at God's mercy to the people of Nineveh, remember things about Jonah. Remember, Jonah was a believer. Jonah had just done what God asked him to do. I mean, Jonah was a prophet. Jonah was a Jewish prophet on side with doing what God wanted to do in the end. Uh, and he was a man who had a personal relationship with God. He was in dialogue with God, and it was honest dialogue. Now, these are all great things. We're dealing here with a prophet, a Jew, a man who knew Scripture, a servant who had been entrusted by God with a very important mission. Remember that. We tend to forget. Why do we need to remember that? Well, it's not only important for Bible study, but we need to remember in case we start thinking. I mean, people who come to Sunday night services are often mature Christians. They're often diligent in prayer. They're often people who serve God as best they can. So we can start thinking that somehow we're exempt from this poor attitude. That this unwarranted anger that's demonstrated by Jonah is, well, it doesn't really affect a serious and mature Christian, a, a person who serves God, a person who still seeks to serve God. Let me tell you, those people, the people who still seek to serve God, they are the people who can benefit most from reflecting on the reasons for that negative response of Jonah to this great outpouring of God's grace and mercy. You see, well, why was Jonah angry? Why was he upset? But there were many reasons, but Jonah was angry and upset because he really felt betrayed by God. He, he felt that God had let him down by not destroying the city because he predicted. I mean, he was a prophet. His reputation was at stake. Um, one, of my, one of the quotes I like most, because it's by a famous physicist, Niels Bohr. Name won't mean much to you if you're not into science, but he made this lovely statement that prediction is very difficult, especially about the future. <laughs> and it is difficult. And Jonah's reputation as a prophet predicting the future was pretty tarnished by now. And you say, well, you know, maybe you're reading into Scripture, but I can tell you Jonah's ego was a factor because if you really look at the text, his emphasis is on personal pronouns in these opening verses. You go through this, ten times I counted the personal pronouns, I and me, they come in different forms in these opening verses. Because it is tough to deal with being wrong. I like this uh, little snapshot of Lucy. She said, the last time I was wrong was in August, 1958. I think it was on a Monday. <laughs> See, Lucy, I'm not often wrong. You know, there's Lucy sitting with Linus. Linus says, all the, all's right with the world. She, she said, what do people mean when they say all's right with the world? Well, Lucy said, it means Lucy's here. <laughs> See, Lucy, Lucy was focused on being right and her reputation and all those things. But, you know, a sure sign of immaturity in a person is, is that they're wrapped up in themselves, as the saying goes. makes a, a pretty fruitless package because that's what children are. Children are great. Uh, 
But one of the things I've noticed, my grandchildren are big now, very big, as you'll notice tonight, but, but I notice this, you know, you go to the Bosworth, you've got these great kids, but what kids do, and it's in dealing with kids, they say, look at me, and they do things, and uh, of course it never works when you're looking, so they do it again, and say, look at me. But is that what adults do? I mean... It's sad to see Jonah that was worried what people would think about him because there'd been a powerful movement of God. It had just occurred. and Instead of rejoicing, he's unhappy. And he seems to be thinking more of his reputation as a prophet whose predictions didn't pan out as predicted than the, the wonderful way God responded to people. So let's be very careful that our responses to God don't get shaped by our own ego. I say that because I find that happens. I mean, you know, I've worked for 70-odd years on my ego, and it's still popping out all the time. Maybe it's a problem. Men have more than women. There's a guy who's supposed to take out the garbage. He's making a huge fuss about it. But I've done this. What I miss most, well, I'd say most, what I miss about Vivian, I did little jobs. You just say, clever boy. Pat, I'm thinking of getting a little budgie that says, clever boy. Because <laughs> I don't... Be, but you see, there's a serious part to this because, because that kind of motive has no place in, in Christian activity. And it's sadly possible, even for mature believers, um, to allow our ideas and our concern for our reputation to somehow influence our attitude more than God's Word does. Think about it. I want to tell you tonight, we must always measure our experiences and our thoughts by what God says in his word. Disobedience, we saw it in Jonah, lack of acceptance of God's real will, it can never be justified. Notice how Jonah still tried to justify his former disobedience. You'd think he'd be over that by chapter 4. But he said, in effect, he said, Look, this is why I refused to go to Nineveh when you first called me. He's really, on, on, on reflection, it seems I was right all along. Jonah apparently still felt he was right because in verse 2, Jonah, look what he does. He quotes God's word back to God in an effort to show that he, Jonah, was actually right in his judgment. What he does is quotes, he quotes Exodus 34, a scripture we've had before in this series, wonderful scripture that summarizes God's character. He quotes it, he says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That's the nature of God. We've talked about that. But John is saying, in effect, isn't this what you said? So why, with this kind of God in mind, did you send me to Nineveh with a message you never intended to fulfill? And it becomes quite evident that Jonah begrudged God's generosity to sinners. And Jonah tried to show that in all that had happened, I was a consistent one. I stuck to the plan. You see, really Jonah's question was, why did you change your plans? And that's the heart of Jonah's anger with God. But let me warn you about this. You see, he quoted scripture. He tried to use the word of God against God. And you think about it. That's a strategy Satan used in tempting Christ. Remember the stones and bread story? The devil says, 
when he tempted Christ, it is written. He quoted Deuteronomy 8.3. And again the devil said, it's written. And he quoted Psalm 91, 11 and 12. Uh, quoted his scripture, and Satan used scripture, the word of God, to try to get God to change the course that he'd set. Of course, impossible with our Lord Jesus. But, but Jonah's trying the same thing, quoting the word of God. This is what Jonah did. He quoted scripture in seeking to justify himself. But when he used scripture to argue with God, what he was using was the strategy of the evil one. Now he said, well, what's that got to do with me? It's this, that we need to be careful when we're reading the Bible and we're using scripture. Let me say, never read the Bible to justify your own ideas and behavior. You'd be surprised how many people want to justify what they want to do, and they, they go to Scripture. And especially if what you're planning is a bit dubious, don't try and search the Scripture to justify it. You know how you should read the Bible? You know that. You should read the Bible. Look, find verses that expose your sin. Find verses that correct your ideas. Find verses that draw you closer to God. Find verses that will cause you to fully accept his plans. That's how you read the Bible. So often, people read the Bible like Jonah to justify their own ideas. Not a little Lucy incident here. Charlie Brown is saying, because she's just found the word sister, she's always wanting to show how smart she is. He says, so you found the word sister in the Bible. What does that prove? Well, she said, it proves I know more about the Bible than you thought. Well, said Linus, did you find it in the Old Testament or in the New Testament? He said, the what? Because <laughs> Lucy didn't know anything about the Bible except she searched it to make a point, to justify herself, show how clever she was. I've known. Hey, I've done it myself. Use the Bible to show what a smart lad I am in preaching. I mean, preachers do that. What a terrible, tragically, you know, Jonah was so bent out of shape by what happened that, that let me say in verse 3, he said, I'll be better off dead. Now, you're not much, you can't be more bent out of shape than that. But that's again what immature children, I mean, immature children, when they don't get their own way and, and they're out of sorts over something, they say, I wish I was dead. You know, that's a, a child's petulant response. John is such an interesting guy. In his disobedience, he'd actually asked the sailors to throw him overboard. That was a courageous act. But now, having obeyed God, he's still so unhappy that he'd come back again, this death wish. Of course, how good God is. He, he, he never acts on an immature outburst. When you have a, a childish outburst with God and say things he knows you don't mean, he's not going to act on those things. But here's Jonah wishing he was dead. Oh, I, by the way, I never showed the last slide of that. I mean, that is a very important punchline. I'm sorry. She said, I may have to hit him again. <laughs> we don't like being wrong. I shouldn't have missed that, but there we go. But, but you have to say, how could Jonah be in such a bad state? His anger, his depression boils down to the fact that despite all he'd seen of God's mercy and grace, the real theological bottom line on this, he'd still not reconciled himself to the will of God. That's the major point. Right from the beginning, all throughout his experience, all through what he'd seen of God's grace, 
even when he was disobeying God, it seems like Jonah was secretly unhappy because, well, he felt that what God was likely to do, he said, I know what you're like, God. What God was likely to do was not what Jonah thought God ought to do. And it was certainly not what Jonah wanted God to do. And it's just, I mean, God does things that, that we don't want him to do. It's just a reminder, it's so important that we're always ready to abandon ourselves and all our ideas to God's sovereign and perfect will. You people know, as well as anybody, the things that have happened to me in the last year. God does all kinds of things we don't want him to do. And it's been a challenge to, for me to get to this truth that God's sovereign and perfect will is something that I must accept. Because only God sees the full picture. Only God knows about final outcomes. And the reality is we've got to remain ready to accept God's plans and have total confidence that ultimately, Romans 8, 28, that wonderful verse, I'll put it up in a minute, but that verse remains true, that God really does care for us and he is working for our ultimate blessing. Whatever happens, you know that verse. We know that in all things, God works, what? For the good of those that love him, who've been called according to his purpose. And that's the challenge. Jonah was continually confused because he'd not got to that point. But let's get to a happier emphasis. The second point was, of course, what God was doing. I want to talk about God's care and control. You see, the way God showed his mercy to Nineveh was astounding though it was. I want to tell you, it was equaled by his incredible patience in dealing with Jonah. I mean, God dealt with those wicked sinners by what? Graciously forgiving them, saving them. But now he's dealing with a different problem. He's dealing with a self-centered, anger-filled, well-taught, but questioning believer. And I think that proved to be a more protected and challenging problem. And of course, God does it all the time, deals with self-centered, anger-filled, well-taught, questioning believers. We could have some here tonight. God deals with them in a wonderful way. I mean, Jonah definitely proved to be a disappointing servant. It didn't, see, from this point on, what did he do? He abandoned his mission to Nineveh, he was, unwilling, he was unwilling to stay to tell him any more about God. He actually said, let's just see what happens to Nineveh now. He buzzed off. He, he built a little shelter for himself. It was a private retreat. He was unwilling. He was unwilling to take shelter in Nineveh because he despised his people. He was still hoping for their destruction. And he made a third mistake. He actually sat back and became a spectator. And those are tragic errors, three tragic errors made by Jonah, but the ones that believers can and do make today. You could abandon the work that God's called you to before the job's completed. If God calls you to a job, you've got to finish it. God finishes jobs. Never abandon something God's called you to do until the job's done. A second mistake, we can isolate ourselves in private holy hurdles. We could be a lovely little fellowship. We can enjoy the fellowship. No beach outreach for churches like that. I can say this here because you're not like this. You can 
just want to stay in that little shelter. And worse than anything, you can become a spectator in the work of the Lord. You can say, let's see what happens, but not an active participant. You're called to be a participant. And Jonah's total lack of compassion just stands in stark contrast to everything that he knew about the compassionate heart of God. And you, you, you read verse 5, he just goes out east of the city. He still seems to hold out some hope that God may yet send down fire and destroy the city, but he sure wants to be on the front row if that happens. And so he waits. And God's plans unfold. And look at that in verses 5 through 8, the action shifts. The action shifts to outside the city. And we read this wonderful phrase that we've seen so often in this book, God provided. There are several times then God provided or God appointed. You see, here it is, God's not given up on Jonah. God continues to work on Jonah, patiently trying to get Jonah to understand his purpose and his character. I'm going to talk about the challenging questions Jonah, the God asked Jonah soon, but I want you to see first all that God did to try to bring Jonah around to his way of seeing things. So he starts doing stuff. We read in verse 6 that God caused a very rapid growing vine to spring up suddenly. Right next to Jonah's crude shelter, God provided some shade for Jonah, and it helped him keep him cool. It protected him from that blazing desert sun. And look what we read. We read, Jonah was very happy about the vine. Isn't that astounding? This is the first time we read about Jonah being happy about anything. He's been totally unhappy. Up till now, nothing's pleased Jonah. But now he feels, at last, something's been done for Jonah. Isn't it incredible how self-centered a servant of God can become? He's angry at the conversion of an entire city, but he's delighted when the small blessing of a vine provided him with a bit more cooling comfort. Just a tree. Here's another little episode without my friend Lucy and Linus. She says, trees have many uses, Linus. Uh, they prevent erosion. Their wood is used to build beautiful houses. They provide shade from the sun, protection from the rain. And when life gets too hard, they're very good to lean against. Trees are useful. Hey, God, he provides something. But this whole incident is a challenge to us. The challenge of what makes us happy. Jonah was so happy about this. You know, we've become so materialistic today that even Christians can begin to believe that something material or something physical, something that provides comfort, can actually be a source of happiness. Those TV commercials would have us believe that happiness can come from, well, some trivial improvement in our appearance or our personal comfort. And it's a challenge. You see, if we claim that we belong to the Lord, it's a challenge to us who so easily become more concerned with trivial comforts than the plight of the unsaved. You see, it's important for us as Christians to think what makes us happy as believers. Is it trivial comforts? Is it material things? Or is it things concerning God's kingdom, the plight of unbelievers, the work we're called to do for the Lord? You see, we sing, the joy of the Lord is my strength, but we seek happiness in these trivial ways. 
So God continues. Jonah's happy about trivia, but God continues in his effort to change Jonah's perspective. So what does he do next? He causes a worm to come and attack that vine. So it withered. Jonah lost his cooling shade. There's a lesson in that. I can't bring every lesson. There isn't time. But let me remind you, just as a passing aside, that every physical, personal comfort has in it a worm of destruction. You see, hey, it may last a lot longer than, than the vine, but eventually everything's going to decay. I have a problem at my age. My daughter doesn't want to find China. I tried. Nobody wants my stuff, and I don't have long. I can't get rid of this stuff. I spent all my life collecting it. And I realized it, it's going to decay. It's not an important thing. But listen, get back to Jonah. I've got to move on this. What do we mean? God causes a strong east wind to blow from the desert, and it, it, well, it caused enough heat to make Jonah feel really faint. In fact, it was suffocating. And what this made Jonah even more angry. Once more, that self-pity grips him, and he, what does he do? He expresses again that wish to die. He, he wanted to die simply because he'd lost his shade and he got too hot. You've got to figure, what's going on with Jonah? Well, it's self-pity. Self-pity is an awful affliction, and it's amazing how self-centered someone who's called to serve God had become. It was trivial things that made Jonah happy, but it's trivial things that made Jonah angry. And this is human weakness again. You see, you don't forget this. The, the, the poorest person here today, the one who's struggling the most, is in a global sense in a far better position than the majority of people in the world. Alison could probably give you all the stats, but I tell you, we're among that very small percentage of well-blessed people. What makes us angry? You know, one of the things that I was moved most uh, about Vivian in the hospital that I told you about is <clears throat> in the most discomforting test, in the most difficult situation, she always smiled. That smile was still there. And I just thought, there's something there that that brings a smile, and you know what it was. This is a spiritual thing. It's not to do with physical comfort. <coughs> so you reflect on that, but let's get back to what God's doing. What are the actions? Well, God starts doing things, and as he does it, I put these different animals up just to remind you. In this book, God shows he controls every living thing in his creation. It's an astounding thing. And... God's doing stuff. He never doubt God's care and control. You've seen in this book, he, he controlled the ocean and the fish. Now he's using plants and insects and the weather. He's using all this stuff to help Jonah grow, to bring blessing to the misguided Jonah. So don't ever doubt God's control and care. If you get into difficulty, never forget God's control, his care. But remember this, that God sent that vine, it wasn't just to provide some shade, it was a caring act, of course, but it was to teach Jonah a lesson. God taught Jonah about his love for the people of Nineveh by paralleling Jonah's concern for that vine, whose creation Jonah had no, nothing to do with, he wasn't responsible for that, for God's love for a city that he'd created. 
He's trying to get John. Can you see this? I created that city. I love that city. And you're getting all bent out of shape about this vine. You see, what God does, and he does it in our lives, he brings good into our lives. He brings blessing in our lives, not just to be a comfort. He does that, but to teach us about his astounding grace. And that's what he's doing. We don't deserve it, but God does it anyway. So continue to look into the way God tried to teach Jonah about his grace and mercy. And we must move to see that in that challenging conclusion. You see, because even after God had patiently done so much for Jonah, there's still no evidence of gratitude on Jonah's part. Jonah remained oblivious to the inconsistency of his attitude. He still resented the mercy shown to this pagan city. He saw no reason why he should personally be deprived of the mercies and comforts that he temporarily enjoyed. These were great comforts. Why have they gone? And even after God tried to teach him with those three very, very clear symbols, he remained unchanged. So what's God going to do? Faced with that unchanging attitude, I would have thought, God's going to give up on Jonah. He's going to cast Jonah aside. How far is God supposed to go? This is self-centered exclusivism. His lack of pity for others. He's constantly arguing. His self-justification. God's going to cast him aside. Well, read on. No, God, God continues to ask him questions, patiently working with Jonah. He's saying, well, look, are you right to be angry because of the vine? Now, Jonah didn't stop to think about a proper response. I mean, he says, yes, yes, I, I'm, I'm right to be angry. He continued his angry bit of resentment. He said, well, that was a merciful gift of God, but it was my right, and, uh, and I have a perfect right to be angry. But God's response, he continues to challenge Jonah. He puts a position even more plainly. God spells out for Jonah by reminding him, he says, you've done nothing to cause the plant to appear. You can't lay any claim on it. What a challenge. I mean, he's saying, it's a challenge to us. You know, I have a nice garden. I'm trying to keep going. And, I, and I'm finding myself worrying about the shade trees sometimes because they're getting old and going to have guys to look after them. I worry about the air. We worry about this sort of stuff just like Jonah. But God doesn't give up. He works with us. Jonah's still obtuse, but God continues to patiently pose another critical question. You see, he said, if Jonah would have pity on a plant and would have spared it, he say, isn't it reasonable that God would spare Nineveh with its vast population and cattle? Now, the answer should be obvious. There were 120,000 young kids in Nineveh. 120 little micas and all these guys that run around this chapel. 120,000. That means the total population must have been at least 600,000. And God's saying, well, were all these people who've acknowledged their sin, reformed their lives, are they supposed to suffer judgment, a judgment reserved for the impenitent? Should they suffer judgment while Israel, with a lot more light, but equally culpable, would be spared? You'd think Jonah would say, well, that's pretty obvious. We don't hear his answer. But it, it's got to have been obvious to Jonah. I can't think that he missed that. 
Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, yeah, that's Jonah. Jonah, what a challenge he was. What a failure he was. I mean, he should have realized that God's mercy isn't restricted to one nation. He should have realized God is Lord of heaven and earth. He should have realized every creature owes its existence to God and that God's mercy will reach out to them. But it's Old Testament stuff. I mean, it's a special situation. I want to think about what Jesus taught. If you're thinking like that, I want to remind you tonight that the symptoms Jonah showed were condemned very clearly by the Lord Jesus. We haven't time to give detail, but think of the parables Jesus told. You think of the parable in Matthew 20 when he said, those who worked all day in the vineyard, worked hard all day, they grumbled because they were hired and worked all day. And those guys hired at the last hour, they got the same pay. Remember that parable? How did the Lord end that story? The Lord ended that story with a question. Another question, he said, the vineyard keeper says, do you begrudge my generosity? Do you begrudge my generosity? That's exactly the question God's asking Jonah. You think of that famous parable in Luke 15, the, the man with two sons, and that wasteful, rebellious son. What a waster. He comes home broke, and he returns to his father. Amazing. What grace. He gets a party. And that older brother refuses to come in the celebration. He's another soaker like Jonah. He stays outside. Why? He resented his father's generosity. And the father said, you're invited. It's party time. Join the fun. Oh, no, I resent that. He exhibited the same symptoms as Jonah. He begrudged the father's generosity to a sinner. Don't ever do that. You know, i got to conclude, but I, I think I've thought so much about things Peter said in connection with Jonah. And he said in Acts 3, and it summarizes Jonah, repent and turn to God so your sins may be wiped out. That's been the story of Jonah. Repentance, turning to God, forgiveness of sins. But look what he said. Repent and turn to God so your sins may be wiped out that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. And we've got to understand that, 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 that what the Lord wants to give us, he's made us, what does Isaiah say, he's made us a light for the Gentiles, that his salvation may reach what? The ends of the earth. And the Lord Jesus, he used exactly the same language. He said, look, you're, what did he say, Matthew 5, 14, you're the light of the world. And if you want to know joy and refreshment and real party time, fellowship time in that sense, remember, you're as a Christian left in this world to be the light of the world, to witness to Christ's saving power. Because the last call, and I want to go back to this, and I must conclude with, a, with a, Christ's last call as he ascended is the commission. Just as clear as Jonas, go into all the world, all the world. You see, in Matthew, Jesus said that God cares about the sparrows of Jerusalem. Never limit the care of God. He was concerned for the cows of Nineveh. And he says to Jonah, is God not right? Is God not great for showing mercy? He said, God cares. 
And he's giving you, as I talked about Jonah on dry land this morning, he's giving you yet another chance to serve him. And the challenge of all this, you see, the real measure of the wideness of God's mercy, it's wonderful in Jonah, but that's not the real measure. The real measure of the wideness of God's mercy is ultimately seen. What do we have in the breaking of bread this morning? The stretched out arms. The outstretched arms of Christ when he hung on the cross to die for our salvation. Can you doubt the mercy of God? He says, it's not just Jonah, it's New Testament. It's that, I'm in Florida, I'm enjoying the sea and the beach, it's great. But I was challenged as I lay there. Where and how do we stretch out our arms? His arms are stretched on the cross. And as we talked this morning about his arm reaching out, I want to tell you, if our hands reach out to unworthy, dreadful sinners, people you'd hardly expect God to save, I can promise you there'll be that response. The global challenge of Jonah is to reach out around the world. It's important that you're having a missionary prayer meeting. I don't need to preach this. My daughter here is working with refugees from all around the world that come to Micah House. Why is it called Micah House? You know from this morning. Because the ministry of the, the, the call of the Christian is to stretch out to the needy. The needs are enormous. And you cannot get to the book of Jonah and say that's Old Testament. It's for us. The Christ who stretched out his arms is the Christ that called us to go to all the world, to every needy sinner. May God help us to do that and to see ourselves perhaps in Jonah and to change and to rejoice in the mercy of God and to show it to everyone we meet. I'm going to suggest because we've got to the end and even Malcolm said quarter past, so we're there. That instead of singing and me giving a, a trite prayer, that we just pause and think about Jonah and our attitude and what we think about sinners and what we think about the mercy of God. And just pray yourself that God would open your heart in this needy world and God would speak to you. So let's have a moment of quiet prayer and then a benediction. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever.